Welcome to this uh, Retirement Matters Committee Sessional. It uh, gives me great pleasure to welcome Dwayne today. He's going to do a presentation for us on uh, liability-driven investments. So a lot of us, uh, since our early days of studies, we've been bombarded by liability-driven investment. And a lot of us, for us, it probably means uh, if it's uh, short-term liabilities, you invest more heavily in cash. And if it's long-term liabilities, you invest more in equities. But uh, let's hear what uh, Dwayne has to say for us today. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks, everyone, for coming through. Um, yeah, just maybe a little bit of an overview about what we'll talk about. I really want to focus on a, on a new tool that we've, we've launched. It's called the Alexander Forbes Manager Watch. Don't get scared off by the fact that there's a corporate's name in there. It's not, we're not going to punt any products or anything. It's really just a, a way of, of trying to, on, a, on an objective, fair basis, compare what's come, become known as LDI managers or asset managers, liability-driven investment managers, before we get onto the survey, I'm just going to paint a bit of a background, a bit of a picture in terms of where's LDI today in South Africa, what's, what's sort of available and how's that developed. And then also just have a look at how that applies to, to defined contributions. I've, I've written a definition here and it's really my own view on what LDI is. I've said LDI is all about investment strategy design driven or informed by liabilities. And a point I want to make up front there is that for me, LDI is exactly what the name says. It's, it's not specifically about de-risking. It's about being cognizant of, about, of your liabilities. Let me just talk through that in more detail. I'll start with what is LDI and then I'll talk about what I don't think LDI is. Um, LDI is all about measuring risk and return relative to your liabilities or objectives. Sometimes you don't have a clearly defined liability, so you have to work in terms of some other objective. It's about designing or optimizing strategies relative to your liabilities. And that requires that you have a good understanding of what those liabilities or objectives are. In a defined benefits situation, it's, it's quite easy to understand. There's a defined set of cash flows. You have to meet those cash flows. You've probably got a corporate behind that who has to report any deficits on, the, on their balance sheet. So there might be you know, like a one-year reporting period, that kind of thing attached to that. In the DC environment, more of an income requirement, um, the potential to use utility theory over that income requirement. So it's really about understanding exactly what, what an investor is after and designing a strategy for that. So that's not something that's specific to defined benefit funds. Um, and it also doesn't necessarily imply de-risking. It just says, it, it, one of the things it might imply is, is actually taking on sufficient risk to meet, meet your, your liabilities. Where do LDI asset managers fit in within the spectrum? What is an LDI asset manager? It's pretty much taken on the meaning of, of managers who focus on, on instruments like bonds and swaps, and they really manage low-risk investment portfolios that are designed to track quite closely your liabilities or designed to track your liabilities quite closely and add some sort of alpha through credit or, or some, some other sort of play. But the idea is really low-risk strategies. Um, these managers use a variety of, of technologies which deal quite well with this, really have thus far focused on DB funds and mining rehabilitation. So clients or, or investors with fixed, fixed liabilities, either fixed in nominal terms or in inflation-linked terms. And I've said just, again, my own personal view, yeah, is this perhaps a misnomer? Um, these managers have become known as LDI managers, perhaps more accurate would be liability matching strategies or liability matching investments uh, or asset managers, which really form a part of this wider area, which I would call LDI, which relates to designing a whole strategy um, that to, to target your liabilities. What is LDI not? And I, I think I want to touch on a couple of misconceptions that I've seen in the market. It's certainly not a new idea. It's been part of the actuarial profession for literally hundreds of years. Um, I think for as long as the profession has existed, we've grappled with this concept of designing benefits and designing asset strategies which um, meet those benefits with the least, least amount of risk. As, times, as time has passed, the, the tools that we have to do that, the technology we have to do that, and the strategies we have to do that has grown. Our toolbox has expanded, um, and there's really just more to throw at that problem. So that's an important point for me. This is not a new concept. We've been investing to meet liabilities for a very long time. These LDI managers, I think are often seen as this esoteric alternative other assets class. They really just represent a new set of tools that we have at our disposal to, to really target the same objectives we've always been targeting. Um, why do I say it's not new? 
The concept of immunization goes back to Reddington's uh, book in 1952. The idea of, of immunizing against non-parallel shifts in the yield curves dealt with in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, a couple of actuaries contributing their the sort of seminal papers there, Ho and Rotano. Um, acid liability modeling, very popular from the 90s, I think, locally. Um, the inflation-linked bonds, when the government started issuing in sort of early 2000s, big step forward in terms of our toolbox. And I've made the point here, LDI doesn't imply that you need to completely de-risk. It doesn't imply um, that an investor would need to change their risk tolerance. I often get people asking me, um, is this a good idea? Why would we want to invest in this? It's going to give us a lower return in equities. I think that's not what's under discussion. It's to the extent that you have a certain risk budget at hand, how do you spend that risk budget? To the extent that you are going to invest in low-yielding um, assets, for example, if you're near to retirement or if, you, if your risk tolerance is such that you do invest in low-risk assets, how do we structure those most efficiently to meet your liabilities? And that's really the domain of these LDI managers. So through the rest of the presentation, when I speak of an LDI manager, really a manager that invests in matching instruments that closely tracks your liability. How do we contextualize that relative to other traditionally low-class, uh, low-risk low asset classes? Or, or instruments, whether it be cash, CPPI, structuring, so floors, caps, that kind of thing. These are all low-risk assets with very specific objectives. If you look at something like cash, if you are interested in capital value, cash is probably one of the safest investments you can make, um, barring a few caveats. Um, if you are interested in meeting a DB obligation, inflation-linked bonds, the right combination of inflation-linked bonds are probably the lowest risk assets. So where does this fit in? I th the point I'm trying to make here is that these LDI managers are very much part of the toolbox that we take to clients. They are a low-risk strategy for clients with a specific kind of objective or target. Um, they don't replace cash or CPPI or guaranteed funds to, to achieve those objectives. They're, it's a new set of tools for a different set of objectives. Typically, um, most of the sort of optimization and testing that we do, obviously when you look at low risk strategies, you see quite a disparity. So if you are targeting something like capital um, stability or um, meeting an obligation, you have a great disparity in terms of your low risk strategies. So low risk strategies, if you a DB fund and you want to run on a really low risk strategy, it's probably going to be focused on inflation linked assets. If you are in, in a capital cognizant environment, it would be focused on cash. On the other side of that spectrum, if you go aggressive, um, asymptotically most of these kind of profiles tend towards equity investment. So even if you are capital cognizant or um, liability cognizant, etc., these tend to, to equities. And I think this just sort of paints the picture that these LDI managers are really just another tool, um, a very efficient tool for dealing with specific types of risks. So they, it, it doesn't mean sacrificing any of the sort of traditional thinking. It doesn't mean sacrificing any of our growth assets, that kind of thing. It's just about correctly harnessing that together with the same sort of thinking we've always had as a profession. A lot of people ask me about the application to define contribution funds. Um, the sort of technology used by these managers, I think, has been yeah, in South Africa for at least five years, probably closer to a decade in terms of the life codes. Application to um, mining rehab, you know, subsequent to that, defined contribution funds, very, very little penetration thus far. Um, and I think that's really just because it's a, a new strategy. I don't think there's any reason otherwise why, why it wouldn't take off. Um, LDI, I think, has a good home within the DC space. It's just about identifying what the objectives are that you're trying to achieve there. In terms of the literature, we'll start with the literature. I think the concept of LDI is quite well established. Um, the idea of gamma introduced by Kaplan, the idea that you should be measuring against an income requirement or a utility requirement and adding your, testing your value add and de-risking against that. Um, the work by Ems and Blake on utility optimization, so designing a strategy to meet the pure, pure objective of a DC member, um, how that DC member evaluates different income levels in terms of its benefits, um, and something as simple as a liability-based efficient frontier. I think that's something we'll remember from, from our notes, uh, quite a well-established concept, which can also be used in the DC environment. Practical application by industry locally. Um, the broader concept of LDI, again, very well established. The concepts like asset liability modeling, life staging, member investment choice. These are all concepts that speak to meeting an objective that's specific to a member. Um, but these LDI managers that we're talking about today, these LD liability matching managers, 
have gotten very, very little uptake thus far in the DC space. Um, I think the application or the potential for application of these within the DC spaces is, is quite obvious and intuitive. Um, a defined contribution fund doesn't have an explicit guarantee or explicit benefit in the same way that a DB fund does. Um, obviously a member just takes their fund credit, in a typical model will take their fund credit, purchase annuity or purchase a living annuity or make other discretionary investments. Um, Despite that lack of a clear, a clear objective, it's, it's still obvious that that member requires an income. That income is probably inflation-linked, that requirement. Um, so yes, I think that there is a space in terms of low-risk DC strategies, so potentially as you phase down in towards retirement or the low-risk allocations that one may have, so your allocations to bonds or cash during a living annuity, for example, could be structured to, to better uh, match your income requirements. Um, the exact application of that I don't think has been perfected by, by any of the managers as yet. Um, I think there's still some work to be done there. Um, and I'll, I'll touch on some of the sort of challenges in that area just now, just as a profession. I think the message here though is I think that LDI will make a big impact in the DC space. Um, I think all sort of the easy DB funds have been taken um, and the next sort of playground is the DC funds. Um, where do I think they'll first appear? I think they'll start to appear in the bigger package solutions. So um, the kind of big portfolio ranges offered by all the big houses, like the life staging models, where you really have embedded advice or embedded concepts or embedded de-risking. Um, LDI probably remains quite technically complex. I don't think the layman on the streets has any idea what it's about. So I think it's probably going to start making inroads in that segment of the market where you have actuaries, other professionals sort of designing that, understanding what the risks are and why those things are in place. But that leads to a few challenges for us. I think the first one that springs to mind for me is communication. In the DC environment, how do you communicate, I spoke of concepts like gamma, how do you communicate value add in terms of your income requirements? Uh, that straddles concepts like time value of money, inflation, um, deltas, all that kind of thing. So I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges and there's quite a lot of research I think internationally coming out on that. Um, and the next question I'll, I'll pose, and I, I'm, I think it's potentially a controversial question, is it necessary for clients to understand this? If we, if we know that we can provide a better solution for them, better de-risking, um, without a substantial change to their portfolios, if we're just replacing their current FI exposure with something that aligns more closely to, to an annuity, is it critical that they understand the exact implications in terms of concepts like gamma? I would hope that we could find ways to, to communicate the concept behind that, but I think there's a limitation to how much of that you can communicate to, to a typical defined contribution member, especially currently. I think it's, it's work in progress. Another issue, I said that this is another tool in our toolboxes. Um, I think probably all the different advisors, uh, whether it be in retail or institutional space or designing portfolio ranges for retirement accumulation, um, everybody probably uses slightly different optimization techniques or selection techniques, how you actually construct a portfolio, what, what you deem to be appropriate investment. Um, uh, often, not always, that, that involves modeling. If you are using something like shortfall probabilities or utility or a market space, whatever, it requires that you model these, these portfolios. Um, these LDI managers, I don't, I don't think it's impossible to, to model what they're doing, but it does require potentially some extensions to, to basic, basic asset liability modeling, potentially using yield curves, um, really just more refined modeling that, that better reflects concepts like mark to market, yield curves, valuation, that kind of thing. And then I think, Probably the most common question I get asked about LDI in, in terms of DC is very few members select inflation-linked annuities. And if very few members select inflation-linked annuities, does that not imply that LDI doesn't really have a space here? Um, I'm not going to go into the debates around the merits of, say, with profit annuities, living annuities, etc. What I will comment, and I think this is still, again, an open-ended question, unsolved question, is people selecting a with profit annuity or inflation linked annuity or an, a level annuity is, is a choice of instrument. It's certainly not um, a need or objective or goal. People need an income. 
um, people will value an income, different incomes in different ways, talking to concepts around utility. So I think one needs to remain cognizant of the fact that we need to measure the merits of investment strategies against that need. So not against the arbitrary, arbitrary sort of supposition that somebody will go into a specific annuity type. I think ideally our modeling or optimization needs to be flexible enough to to measure value in terms of income that someone can derive or utility of that income and sufficiently flexible to allow for choice between those annuities. So to assist members in choosing between those annuities to meet their true requirement, which is, say, um, an income, and then also to optimize across strategies pre that annuitization decision, that lock-in. So like I said, I think probably still an open-ended question, uh, probably a challenge we'll face for the next few years in terms of how we harness these these things into, into DC. But uh, yeah, I think that the importance there is again to to use true LDI to really be liability driven, you, you need to understand the client or, or investor's true liability or objective. So looking through to the actual need, their need for income, um, rather than their need for say with profit annuity or living annuity or anything like that. Okay, I wanna talk a bit about evaluating these managers. It, it's, a, it's a market that's grown incredibly. Perhaps it's a buzzword, perhaps it's I think it's real value for, for clients, but um, probably at least seven or eight managers active in the space at the moment that you could invest money in uh, on an LDI style mandate. Um, I'd say probably easily 100 billion rand in, in, this, in this market. That includes not just pension funds, it includes other types of investors. Um, pension funds, I'd say there's probably 30 or 40 billion already invested in, in these style of mandates. So it's, it's not a small thing. Um, it's been around for at least probably four years or so in terms of pension fund money entering into these solutions. So I think it's important that we um, address how to evaluate these managers, especially because it's such a technical area. It's, it's an area, it's I think a typical kind of area where a client looks to an actuary for assistance in evaluating these things because it's riddled with concepts like time value and, and, and valuation. I think kind of the critical elements to evaluating these managers, uh, probably all the obvious stuff around operational and government, governance issues, which I think is quite simple to understand, the same sort of issues you would face with a normal manager understanding their their systems, their governance, their risk systems, their reporting systems, and making sure that's all fine. And then comes the difficult one, evaluating their investment issues. So how good is one manager going to be relative to another? And I think the most important thing here is that this is very much a forward-looking decision. So you've got to evaluate these managers on what you think they can achieve in the future, which talks to an understanding of their hedging techniques, their hedging technologies, and their, their engagement or inclusion of, of credits in these portfolios. Um, it's, it's important that to, to understand that if a manager is going to change their technology, you need to understand what that, that means and whether that's going to be effective going forward. But as well, it's, it's important to look at the past as well to, to gain an understanding whether these managers can actually implement these things. Um, a manager can promise you anything, but it's important to see that they can actually deliver on that. And that's where we really got the idea for the survey. We saw a very technically, a technically complex area where managers were pitching against each other using metrics and, and measures that I think very few people understood. Um, I think often it was even as an actuary easy to, to get lost in the detail and not really understand what was comparable and what wasn't. So we really wanted to design a public objective platform for these managers to, to be comparable on. Um, and not to sort of have a commercial interest in it, to, to give a completely independent platform where these managers could compete. And that's where we designed the, the, the AF Manager Watch LDI survey. I'll talk you through it in terms of its detail. It's, it's quite technical. I think probably you would need an actuary or an advanced consultant to be able to, to assist you in interpreting it. I don't think it's uh, aimed at the man on the street, um, but I think it's a useful tool in terms of, of actuaries getting this data on a regular basis. Okay, I'll start with the, the basic sort of premise of the survey. These managers are typically benchmarked against a liability value. So let's take the simplest example. A DB pension fund promises a, a stream of cash flows to, to pensioners, to members. Those cash flows have a value if, the, uh, if you mark those cash flows to market. So if you used a, a live yield out of the market or a live yield plus an equity uh, risk premium, 
those, the, the value of those flows would obviously change as, as markets move. The idea behind LDI asset management is to match those movements. So to build a portfolio with the same sort of sensitivities to market movements as, as that liability. Um, how does one put that into the public domain? Because you start facing issues about um, private information, client inf information, um, large pension funds. You don't want front running. You don't want people trading against these clients if you can pick up sort of where the funding levels are, where they are in terms of their strategy. So what we decided to start reporting was outperformance. So all of these managers have some sort of liability-based benchmark. Uh, typically, that is PV of liability. And as markets move, that PV obviously changes. We asked managers to report by how much they outperformed that, that benchmark. And that's, that's the start of the survey. That's the building, first building block. We then use those cumulatively. We build up over different periods. And I'll just use different examples here to explain it. Let's just take the first one in the survey, uh, the first composite submitted by Colorfield. What we report there is one month. Across the last month, they've outperformed liabilities by 70 basis points across the last year by 120 basis points. So that gives you an idea across different periods by how much they've outperformed. Um, you'll see that the survey is also broken up into different portions. Um, the first portion that we looked at was inflation-linked mandates. So it's a typical DB pension fund where you promised members a benefit that's going to escalate with inflation, or in a life co kind of context, that might be a life company that's written inflation-linked annuities that's hedging that, or in a, rehab, a mining rehab environment that might be a mining rehabilitation uh, liability that's linked to inflation. Second category is nominal uh, benchmarks. So for simple example, obviously being like nominal or, or level, level annuity. So we break it up into those different sections, and that's important because these different sections are not directly comparable. A manager who can manage well in nominal space doesn't necessarily imply that they're good in inflation space. Inflation space is more complex. There are fewer instruments. The liquidity isn't as high. Pricing those instruments is considerably more complex than in the nominal space. Um, so we split those. And you'll notice there's, other, there's a, a mixed uh, category, so that's really for, for clients with, who, who get like a portion of inflation, so say 75% inflation. Um, there are two other categories in the survey which are not shown because we don't have participants yet. Those are swap-based uh, mandates. You, you'll notice that both of these two categories are, are bond-based, so inflation-linked bond and nominal bond. The idea there is uh, liabilities that are, are valued off uh, the yields in, in the bond markets. Some clients uh, mark those, those liabilities based on the swap curve. The swap curve is, is just a market between banks primarily an unfunded market, so a derivative market where one exchanges payments. Um, like I said, we don't have those categories in the survey during this month here, which is December. Um, we believe during the next one or two months that we'll, we'll have one or two participants joining those categories. So, Dwayne, are those figures uh, net of fees or gross of fees? These are all gross of fees. The reason we did that is... Um, if you made them net of fees, you don't know what the fees were inside there. So if the manager comes to you and says, I want to get 15 basis points, you don't really know where you'll be net of fees. If you publish them gross of fees, you can work that out. So if, then you can deduct whatever their fee proposal is from that, um, which I think is nice. Um, yeah. Okay, so if we move across, those are... Those are Sorry, Dwayne, those examples, are there no... Um, return seeking assets. So is it all 100% matching? We don't have a, a requirement for the assets to be 100% matching or 100% FI. Um, but generally those portfolios are. Um, let, me, let me touch on that question just now when we look at tracking areas and I'll explain that in a bit more detail. Okay, so th that first section of the survey deals with outperformance. Important before one evaluates that outperformance is to understand the type of mandates that these managers have. So I've just scrolled across on the survey, and this just gives you details on the liabilities that are being hedged. The first two ones are pretty obvious, duration and convexity. Obviously, the longer the duration, the longer the convexity of the liability being hedged, uh, generally the more challenging the mandate. There's fewer and fewer instruments the further out you go, so there's less to use to hedge, and obviously the sensitivities grow larger. So if you have a 20-year duration, obviously sensitivities to mismatch are larger than at, say, a 10-year duration. So all else equal, and I stress all else equal, a manager with a higher duration, a higher convexity is facing sort of greater constraints and challenges than, than another manager. 
Um, the others are quite self-explanatory. Percentage government bonds in the portfolio and percentage unlisted. That's so that you can get an idea of how much risk the, the manager is taking on. So if you take a look at um, this portfolio over here, 97% in, in government bonds, very low risk portfolio. Unlisted is not one minus that column. Unlisted, there's obviously bonds that are not government issued that are, are listed. So we take, for example, this portfolio over here, 32% exposure to unlisted. That's you know, larger than the other participants in that category. Why do we have that in there? A few reasons. Um, it alerts you to, to risk. Obviously, unlisted instruments might have more risk. The other thing is also just to keep an eye on the managers. Unlisted instruments are not valued on the market. So one does want to be cognizant of the fact that either a bank counterparty is marking those mar instruments to market or the manager themselves are valuing that. So if that percentage is quite large, we keep an eye on those managers and just make sure that there's nothing amiss. Then the final column is this portfolio size. Um, probably more relevant in the inflation side, the larger your portfolio, obviously face a little bit of a liquidity issue there. So if you have a 20 billion rand portfolio or 1 billion rand portfolio, um, and your optimization algorithms say switch 202s to, I don't know, whatever, 238s or 250, 2050s. Um, if the larger your portfolio, obviously, the more constrained you are in terms of uh, market capacity. Okay, now to the more interesting things. Um, we wanted to convert, these mandates focus on meeting liabilities and objectives, so we wanted measures that effectively look at hedging ability and value add from the client's perspective, so from the perspective of your objective. So we use those cumulative outperformances to build what we call synthetic funding levels. And I'll, I'll explain it with an example. Let's switch to a different name here. Let's use coronation, for example. In fact, let's use the nominal bond survey just for a little bit of difference. Let's look at the two sim composites here. The first number over there says to you what is the synthetic funding level after a quarter, or the minimum funding level. What that tells us is if we started the quarter with 100% funding level and we use the cumulative or we use the outperformance numbers they've given us, what is the lowest funding level you would have experienced during that period? And we see that for the first sim submission it's 100.5%. Uh, the different columns represent different periods. So if, let's just use the five year to explain it. If you started with 100% funding level five years ago and you added their outperformance, what is the lowest funding level you would have faced during that period at month end? And that's 100.13%. And we quite like that risk measure because it, it converts risk into the same sort of language that a DB fund would look at it from. A DB fund is interested in how low their funding level goes and how closely it tracks. Um, arguably more so than whether you outperformed the SWIX or anything like that. Um, so I think that's quite a nice risk measure in terms of speaking to clients about uh, risk in, in the context of, of how they measure their objectives. Um, we've also got tracking error. Tracking error is the standard tracking error we're all used to, so it's basically standard deviation of, of uh, the portfolio around the benchmark, which, and the benchmark in this case is liabilities. Um, I'd like to draw attention to a few things here. So tracking error obviously suffers from uh, capturing upside and downside noise around a benchmark. Um, as a client, you're not really that worried about upside noise, you are worried about downside. So if we take uh, those two SIM portfolios, it's quite interesting to actually look at. Let's go back. The first SIM portfolio is, uh, so these are both within the nominal space and they're quite similar portfolios. The first composite is a more aggressive composite than the second. Um, just in terms of mandates and composition, that kind of thing. And what you'll see in terms of tracking areas that reflects, the tracking area is much higher on that first composite, which is a more aggressive portfolio. So, for example, if we take the last year, the second composite's been giving a tracking error of 40 basis points and 113 for, for the first composite. But, and this is really interesting, it's capturing upside noise. So if we go back to that other uh, risk measure, um, minimum funding level, you'll see that although that SIM portfolio, that first composite was more noisy, that noise was on the upside. You'll see that in terms of minimum funding level, um, they've done better in the first composite than in the second composite. And that talks to converting things into risk measures that align with your client's um, interests and objectives. That portfolio generates more noise around that liability, but um, 
in terms of minimum funding levels, it performs better. If we look at as well, if we go back another slide and we go look at cumulative outperformance, you'll see that that portfolio, that first composite, has across the last five years outperformed liabilities by 2% per annum. So it's generated whatever your liabilities were flowing at, plus 2%. If you look at that second composite, 1%. I think that's really the sort of things we wanted to unpack with the survey. We wanted to, to get people thinking in terms of meaningful risk measures. Tracking error is meaningful, but there are limitations to it, so it's useful to look at other risk measures. Um, the last Oh, it's not quite the last, but I mentioned earlier that we break these managers down into comparable groups, so we look at inflation and nominal separately. There are other differences. Um, one of the interesting ones, I think, which is quite exciting, is some of the managers offer you the opportunity to hedge your liabilities with a portion of your assets. So what does that mean in practice? The stock standard original solution was you have 100 Rand in liability, you pitch up with 100 Rand in assets, they, they hedge your, your liability. Um, Nowadays, managers will take on less than the 100. They'll take on whatever the number is, say 90 or 80 or 70, and they will claim to try and hedge all your assets. Now, I'm sure everyone will understand that there is obviously a limitation to how effectively you can do that using less assets. There will obviously be some sort of term mismatch and duration gearing, that kind of thing that comes through, whatever they are doing underneath that, that solution. But despite that, it's quite interesting to see how well these portfolios actually do. So. We split them up over here. You'll notice the first manager involved here, Colorfield, has three composites in the inflation link space, and that's for different percentages of assets. So the first composite is 100 or greater than 75%, so 100%. So if you have 100 Rand in liabilities, 100 Rand in assets. The second composite is 50 to 75, so significantly less. Why is that interesting? Because that frees up assets to, to go for growth strategies. So I said earlier, we can't look at these solutions in isolation. They're not some esoteric alternative to what we've always been doing. You can build solutions using these. You could put, in that case, say 60% of these uh, liabilities into this matching portfolio. It would give you some sort of matching, and you could put the rest into equities if your fund can't afford to, to drop down to the low returns on, on, on the yield curve. Does that make sense? Well, in fact, it does. If we go back to the minimum funding levels, you'll notice that second composite um, with the 50 to 75 percent does surprisingly well. And in the longer term, if you if you watch it on a sort of month-to-month -month basis, it doesn't necessarily do as well as composite one, but it does pretty well. You're talking about tracking there within. Uh, you know, not more than a 20 basis point drawdown below your 100% your, your funding level start. So I think that was another interesting thing for me. Um, that it, it, There's definitely a case for combining these with growth strategies. The final thing that we have in um, is what we call a risk-adjusted measure. It's really just your um, outperformance divided by your, your tracking error, your standard deviation. So we've called it this risk-adjusted or normalized risk measure. Again, it subjects all the same issues that the, that the tracking error is subject to. It's, it, it captures upside um, noise as well as downside noise. But I do think it's always useful to have as, as many sensible measures to use as possible. So as, as much as I like that minimum funding level, um, I think it's very useful to gain an understanding of what the manager is doing using these other, other metrics or risk metrics. So why did we do this? Um, what is the purpose of the survey? We tried to give a controlled environment or platform for these managers to, to compete on. Uh, the last thing we want is a situation where these managers competing against each other, making, generating numbers that nobody knows whether they're comparable, nobody knows how to make them comparable. We create a controlled environment where everybody plays by the same rules and has to to showcase their performance, both in terms of adding value and de-risking on the same kind of principles, same basis, and really to advance awareness. I think a number, I used to work in consulting, and I think whenever you first walked in to buy a client with an LDI strategy, it, they found it intimidating. It, it was complex, and just making this a bit more mainstream um, by creating these standard metrics for evaluating these managers, just sort of demystify this a little bit, make it a little bit more tangible for the general market. I also mentioned earlier, I think that there's going to be a massive growth in defined contribution usage of this. 
Um, for that growth to occur, we need to understand what these managers are doing. We need to understand which ones to choose, how to combine them with assets. And hopefully the survey contributes at least something towards that. Um, and just to make it clear, Alexander Forbes acts as a platform for the survey. We don't financially benefit from it. Um, it's, it's really just uh, it, it's offered free to, to the market. It's, it's available for distribution to anyone. And like I said, just really as a platform for, for anyone to, to gain access to this information. Um, if anyone is interested in, in subscribing to the survey, receiving it, like I said, you'll receive it freely. Um, you can just, just pop a mail to the surveys team. It's managerwatch.aforbes.co.za. It does come out uh, with a lag, a month lag. The, obviously, the data compilation for the managers is, is quite complex. Um, they have to calculate the liabilities, combine them, etc. So we generally publish on about the 15th of the month for one and a half months lag. And uh, I hope everyone has interesting questions about this. Mr. Abramowitz. Dwayne, I just wanted to ask you um, one, one general question. I mean, this is probably one of the few surveys where the uh, manager itself is responsible for the uh, calculation of its benchmark. Um, to what extent would you see the scope for um, independent actuaries, consultants, auditors to either go out, calculate and or verify the liability benchmarks, particularly for third party mandates? I think the potential is there, it exists. Um, maybe also just to, let's start with your first comment that it's, it's the first, it's one of the only surveys where, where that's a problem. I don't think that's the case. Most of the surveys, the data is submitted from, from the managers. Um, how do we guard against problems? Um, sorry, sorry, my question was particularly with regard to the benchmark itself. Yeah, so, okay, so your benchmark, fine. Um, look, there are nuances to benchmark calculation, but generally your SWIX or whatever comes straight off the exchange or Bloomberg, it's, it's quite easy. Um, if you've got something like a CPI plus, sometimes there's, there's subtleties in terms of annualizing in months and all that kind of thing. So agreed, there is a bit of complexity there. Um, and I think, yes, potentially there is a space there. Um, I, think it, I think it is something that everyone worries about. I, I can think of many actuaries, many clients who've sort of raised it as a potential issue. How do we know that this is all correct? Um, yeah, so I think there is a potential space for it there. Sorry, I just also realized, Nikki, I realized that I, I didn't address your, address your question, but if you, it, the sim composite was a good example. The one is more aggressive than the other. So yes, by implication, there are more aggressive assets in there, um, but you'll see from the level of tracking, if you're talking about a tracking error across five years of 122 basis points, you know, there's not serious, serious growth assets. It's not like they, I don't know, in some exotic hedge fund in the Caribbean or something like that. Hopefully. At the back. Just to, you, you talk about the market for this. Um, from what you're talking, it seems to me that the market seems to be in um, payout phase, sort of annuitant type liabilities than anything that is in a build-up phase. Is that a correct interpretation? Or is there in that sort of pre-retirement phase a, a place for this type of portfolio? Okay, so let's take DB and DC. Um, on Thus far, the penetration has been on the decumulation phase. In the DB context, on the accumulation phase, you've got other issues. So you've got wage inflation. So you've got a lot of basis if you try and hedge with these instruments. You've also got your, you've got more decrements that are more uncertain. So in a pensioner pool, um, things are quite stable. People die. Uh, they don't you know, leave and convert and do this and that. So your, your ability to forecast these, these flows is you have greater certainty. Um, how does that relate to the DC side? Yes, that will also be a challenge, but in the DC side you don't have those kind of jumps between the benefits. You don't have somebody transferring and getting a different type of benefit. There's still that same income requirement. So, yeah, I don't think it will be as trivial an application as the pensioner drawdown phase. That, that, that has definitely been the first area where, where the focus has been, but I don't think it would be as complex as the DB active member kind of application. The set of rules or stuff that the trustees have to sign all uh, these things? So, mandates basically. The mandate, yeah. I think, like any mandate, they vary in, in complexity and efficacy. Uh, a good mandate is quite complicated. Um, I think a good mandate, one of the important things in a good mandate is that it speaks to risk 
in the context of this strategy and in the context which clients measure it. So risk should have references to, to funding level, drawdowns against funding level or that kind of thing. It, it shouldn't just be, or potentially like position. So, you know, unhedged rand per point, something like that. It, it can't just be the traditional kind of risk limits that we've set in, in typical mandates. It's, it's not enough to just govern how much a manager can put into credits or unlisted credits or that kind of thing. So the mandates, I think there's a significant mind shift in the same way that measuring the efficacy of these managers, there's a bit of a mind shift in terms of how you do that. The mandates as well. But I mean, the same kind of principles that are required from the FSB on a typical mandate. So disclosures of risk, all that kind of thing. Um, I suppose the big, the big leap of faith is that you, you are putting trust in the manager to, to actually deliver. So if you compare that to an annuity or um, a matching deposit or something like that, there's you know, perfect replication. Um, whereas, yeah, you've, you've got to trust that the manager is actually going to deliver and that they can mess up. I mean, the strategy can go wrong. But you know, this one of the things that makes the survey interesting is that you can keep an eye on that and they, they track incredibly closely. Um, you know, like if you look at the, the, the actual technologies that back these strategies, they, I don't want to trivialize them, they, they are complex, but they, they are more complex things to do. So, yeah, I, I, think that, I think it's relatively safe to answer your question. The mandates, yes, requires a bit of a, a different hat and a different thinking process, but I don't think they're that complex. And I think also they have to be adapted to the level of sophistication of a fund. If, if you have a fund that's not very sophisticated, don't walk in there saying, oh, um, you know, we're going to allow swaps and swaptions and put the limits in terms of something that the clients are not going to understand. You, you have to work with your clients and build something where they understand, at least to a certain extent, those risk limits. How do you look at the, um, the risk of cherry picking here? So I'm sure some of those ma managers have got more than three or four clients. How do you know that's not the best three or four of them? Correct. An issue that we face across uh, all of the surveys, there are a number of rules that try and address that. And I mean, they're not fail safe. Um, let's talk about the rules first. One of the examples is that you can't leave the survey and come back in. So. Um, if you put a portfolio in there and you mess it up, you've got to make a decision. If you take it out, it's out. It doesn't come back in. Um, the principles of GIPS applies. So one would hope that all of the portfolios which are representative are shown with all of their, their history. Um, and then, and I mean, this is not fail safe, but we also do consulting on, on, on this work, obviously. And we have quite a good idea of what these managers manage. And we have a good idea of what's in here and what isn't. And I mean, our reputation is at stake here. Our name's on the survey. So we do, whenever we pick up funnies, you know, like missing assets or performance that doesn't make sense to us or, you know, that we want to question, we do. And I'd say there's probably a query that goes out every month thus far um, that's related to performance, that's related to AUM, that kind of thing. And thus far, we haven't had any trouble, but hopefully it stays that way. It's also, you know, in an, say like an equity mandate, there's, there's a lot more noise. Yeah, you're talking about quite a precise kind of strategy. So if one guy suddenly you know, adds mountains of alpha um, and nobody else does during that month, um, you need to be able to explain that. Examples of that, if you um, have a really long, I don't know, a really long liability and you can't actually match all of that liability, you, you have a natural position there. Um, which marks can move in favor or against. If you are matching using a portion of assets, so 50% of the assets, you know, probably you're going to have you know, more duration on those 50% of the assets than the liability. There's a natural position. So you need to be able to explain any differences in, in performance with issues like that. If you can't, then you know, we obviously ask, where did it come from? Dwayne, two questions. The first is a minor technical one. Your, uh, for example, your minimum funding level, assuming etc. figures there, are those based on monthly observations? They're, they're based on month end. Um, okay, so a few things about that number. It's not. It's not. It's a proxy. I mean, it, it, those funding levels are not 100 to start off with at, at the beginning of those periods. Other issues with that, you are combining different liabilities. Um, if you do the maths, is basically an assumption that of, of essentially rebalancing. Um, and there's also, those funding levels are also, 
basically scaled by, by proportions here. So if you had 50%, of, of, of a liability. If that funding level climbs to 102%, it means that that 50% is 102% funded. It doesn't mean the whole fund is 102% funded. Um, so there are, there are technical issues with that, that minimum funding level, but I think overall it works quite well. Um, something I must stress is that this wasn't our, just our initiative and our design. This was something that was designed very much in conjunction with the managers. Uh, a lot of feedback and really a sort of platform for them to design it. And I think they're all quite comfortable that the good that that measure brings sort of outweighs any limitations or, or estimates or, you know, rounding. So I presume there's going to be long technical notes then behind this thing. Yes. The one other thing that's quite interesting with the survey um, is that we put out commentary with it every month. So there are a bunch of technical notes that explain how to interpret it. But the commentary, I think, is essential. Um, one of our big drives with the surveys at the moment is attribution, getting people to understand why there's differences in performance. So getting people to understand when someone's messing up or when somebody, let's just use a different example. If somebody is in, in a value strategy and they're underperforming at the moment, you could understand why that is. Um, so to, to get people to understand why certain managers underperform and outperform in, in certain environments during credit cycles, that kind of thing. So the commentary thus far has probably been a, anything between half a page to two pages with each month, and it comments on where managers are outperforming, that kind of thing. And we try and keep that, that as simple as possible. My, my second question is, relates to the, the, the several comments you made about the possible application of these techniques to pre-retirement DC investments. I've got to say, I'm still an enormously long way from understanding what this could possibly mean in practice. So I don't know whether you're able to give us any kind of a sense, um, uh, a kind of a more tangible sense of, of, of how this might work in practice. I'll start off with saying that I think it's an unsolved problem. So I don't think, I certainly haven't seen a bulletproof explanation of this is, this is the answer, but let's talk through what is doable right now and where I see it going in the future. Let's take a very, very simple example. Most sort of pre-retirement strategies are some sort of life staging model where people get a heavier and heavier allocation to, to, to FI, potentially cash as well. Um, does it make sense to be having that, that FI allocation to the Orbi with a six-year duration, or does it make sense to have that allocation to, to an LDI portfolio that matches some sort of income stream? I don't think there's. I think there's there's an argument to be made for replacing that with with a better matched um, portfolio. Um, I think the more important work will will still come. I said earlier that this is just a tool, so you need to evaluate on the same measures that you would evaluate anything else. Let's assume, for example, you measure something in in terms of its efficacy to to generate a good VAR or a good uh, expected utility or something like that. You would feed this into that modeling process on the same basis and evaluate it like that. Um, there are a number of challenges with that though. Um, so I, I think that's very much an unanswered question. I think it will still come. I don't think that there's an, I don't think the application is trivial. I don't think it's a matter of, oh, that's the answer. But I think it's a tool that we need to subject to the same sort of evaluation criteria. We just need to make, that our, make sure that our evaluation criteria focus accurately on what a DC member's objectives are. The closest I got out of that to something that I could kind of say was tangible was that you might potentially look at a strategy there which phases somebody as they get closer to retirement into some kind of a long-dated inflation-linked portfolio. That, that could work. Um, I, I think you can't just jump to the conclusion that it makes sense. You have to do a bit of research on it, but I think it does. Um, like I said, to, to the extent that you're going to be incurring the lower expected returns of, again, an assumption, but the lower expected returns of, of, of FI or inflation link, that, those kind of asset classes, it probably makes sense to build those asset classes to look more like your liability. Your, your answer sort of sparked something else for me. Um, Forbes also has a, a bond um, survey, bond manager survey. And there may be, an option just to see the bond survey as a specific occurrence of the LDI survey. So like how, how, do you sort of, how do we sort of join those two up? Because in the LDI survey, you've got a, a duration and a convexity. And presumably in the bond survey, everyone's benchmarked against the Orbi. The Orbi also has a 
duration and the convexity. So is it possible that the one is sort of just special occurrence of the other? There's, there's a big overlap. I think there's a big overlap. Um, we've also had arguments from some of the managers as to uh, whether absolute return portfolio should be allowed in here, and we don't allow it. Your point around the overlap with the bond survey is true, and not just the survey, more generally the concept of evaluating these two managers. And it's an important observation to make. Um, these managers, I suppose there's a spectrum of them, some of them focus on incredibly close tracking, low risk tracking. Um, and some of them focus on de-risking, but with, with alpha through credits, etc. Now, the physical de-risking part of this is very much algorithmic. Everybody has an algorithm that does this. It's fairly basic mathematics. You can, you can pick up quite quickly if it doesn't work. Um, so your ability to evaluate managers who focus on low-risk strategies, it happens quite quickly. You'll see them mess up within you know, a very short period of time. Credit's more complicated. We know that credit's um, the normal rules apply with credit here. You need a much longer period, potentially say five years, to, to understand whether a manager is good at credit or not. And we don't have that history across the board here. Um, but a lot of these managers have credit portfolios. So if you're looking at who has credit portfolios, Coronation, Sim, Investec, Stanlib, all of those guys, you can go and look at their credit history and gain an understanding of how good they are at that. And then you can make your judgments about the AI component. So yes, there's definitely an overlap. And you do need to, you know, harness both sources of information. What is maybe a key element that's missing from here? Because to the extent that they've got the return-seeking assets, and particularly credit assets, there's, there's a risk that I feel is not exactly captured here. And so an extension to this would be something that captures that credit risk. Do it. Potentially, yeah. Um, something like um, a ramp point on credits or something like that. Um, yeah, agreed. One other comment I wanted to make on that before I can see that you're ready to wrap up. Um, we, the rules in terms of compliance and making sure people don't cheat through the survey, etc., are quite tight. But we left the rules in terms of what you could submit quite broad, and we wanted to encourage uh, a breadth of solutions. So at the moment, um, all of these are fairly generic matching type of managers, but. A lot of people believe in you know, growth assets, that kind of thing. And to the extent that guys have proper bench, benchmarks properly linked to liabilities, and there is something else interesting happening, it would be allowed into the survey. We're very keen to try and showcase different approaches to dealing with this. Some people believe in growth, some people don't. Um, and anyone in the industry will know that this pure kind of matching process is not the only kind of tools on offer. Um, and we are keen to 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 capture the benefits, um, positive or negative, of other types of solutions in the, in the survey. All right, thanks a lot. I just want to thank Dwayne for coming down from Johannesburg, especially in August week. So the plane was a bit more expensive, and the, the lodging was a bit more expensive. So just uh, thank him for that, and uh, thank you everybody for coming out. Thanks a lot. Thank you.